0: If I know this is a large project, what are the signs that I can look for on those shorter terms that tell me, is this going the right direction or do I need to course correct? I'm not sure if it's as simple as watching the progress of my broken down micro projects. Maybe it is, but that's kind of where I'm stewing.
1: Sorry, K-Ball. I've been Googling set code this whole time.
0: <laughs> that's okay. Did you find it?
1: No, I might be completely wrong. It might be Derek Savers. <laughs>
2: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Retool. Retool helps teams focus on product development and customer value, not building and maintaining internal tools. It's a low-code platform built specifically for developers. No more UI libraries, no more hacking together data sources, and no more worrying about access controls. Start shipping internal apps that move your business forward in minutes with basically zero uptime, reliability, or maintenance burden on your team. Some of the best teams out there trust Retool Brex, Coinbase, Plaid, Doordash, Legal Genius, Amazon, Alberts, Peloton, and so many more. The developers at these teams trust Retool as their platform to build their internal tools, and that means you can too. It's free to try, so head to retool.com slash changelog again. Retool.com slash changelog.
1: This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of Javascript and the web. You can find us on the web at jsparty.fm. There you'll see our latest episodes, listener favorites, as well as our recommendations. There's also a request form so you can let us know what you want to hear about on the pod. Thank you to our partners at Fastly for shipping our shows super fast to wherever you listen. Check them out at fastly.com. And to fly.io, host your app servers close to your users, no ops required. Learn more at fly.io. Okay, hey, it is party time, y'all. Ahoy, ahoy, friends. Hey, I'm not supposed to say that. I'm Jared, your internet friend. I'm not Nick Neesey, but he's here. What's up, Nick? Ahoy hoy. hoy. Can I still do it? Is there an echo in here? (laughs) Yes, you can still do it. In fact, we're waiting for the day that Nick goes to a conference or an event, IRL, and somebody walks up and says, are you the hoy hoy guy? (laughs) Aren't you waiting for that day? Won't that be fun?
3: I am. I'll tell my children about that day.
1: (laughs) And not a hoy hoy, but hey, K-Ball, it's you. K-Ball, what's up? Hoy hoy. <laughs> See, you can't pull it off. <laughs> Only Nick can pull it off, no matter how hard we try. Oh hoy hoy. Oh, that was actually pretty good. That was pretty good. Stop it. Don't move in on Nick's space, man. He's trying to create a brand. Now, every time you say that, do you pay a royalty to the Simpsons? To Matt Groning, Brought to you by Carls Jr. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Another one cable won't get.
0: I think I gotta send my royalties to Nick and then he forwards them on.
1: <laughs> oh, and he can just take like a penny out of it and pass on the rest. Old school pyramid schemes. <laughs> there you go. Well, if I had a nickel for every time I bombed an intro, I'd have one more nickel than I did it this morning <laughs> because we're going nowhere. Let's get into the show. Hey, friends, we have an awesome show for you today. We're going to go ahead and get started with it. The first thing we're going to do is we are going to holla. Can I
0: holla? Can I holla? Can I holla? Can I holla? Can I holla? 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 Holla?
1: Holla? Holla? Today's holla segment is hollaing at React India. This is India's biggest React conference. It's back again. And this time, it's going to be bigger, better, and hybrid, which is definitely a growing trend. If you haven't heard of the event, React India is an international conference that provides a platform for developers to share and discuss their insights and experiences with React. It provides developers from India an opportunity to meet, listen, and network with React developers and open source contributors from all around the world. This year... The event is held on September 22nd to September 24th. Like I said, it's hybrid. And so it will be live in Goa, India, and also online. They have some great speakers. Names you'll probably recognize. uh, Tejas Kumar, been on the show recently. Josh Goldberg, Lydia Halley, and many more. So definitely attend React India if you're in the area. If you're not, don't worry about it. It's hybrid. Hop online, meet some folks, learn some cool things. So we'll have a link in the show notes to that. Like I said, it's just a few weeks away. So check it out, React India. This has been Holla. Now we have some other awesome segments for you as well. The first one we're gonna do is I'm excited about X where X is literally anything, however, We did not have a theme song for this. And I was not going to go sing a theme song because the last time I did that, K Ball ridiculed me endlessly. And you deserved it. Unless I Nick did that, I ridiculed him endlessly. (laughs) So instead, I went out and talked to our good friend Horse JS. And I asked Horse JS if they would sing a Excited About X jingle. This is what they came up with.
0: I'm. Excited! I, I'm excited
1: about X, about X, about, about, about X. Where X is literally, and I mean literally, anything. <laughs> Thank you, HorseJS, for that spectacular jingle. We'll be sure to use that every single time. So, and
0: that's it. How do we follow that?
1: Right. And that's the segment, folks. Moving on. No, we do have some cool stuff to talk about. This is a segment where we just talk about what excites us right now. We're doing it right at the top today because, hey, when you're excited about something, you don't want to wait till the end to talk about it. So let's talk about it right up front. I have myself first in the list, but that's not a very gracious thing to do. So I'm going to kick it over to K-Ball to start us off. What are you excited about?
0: I am excited about container queries. Woo-hoo! woo We had a news of the week not that long ago that they are about to go production in Chrome. So the next mainline Chrome release will include container queries. And I've started talking with folks on my team about how do we want to use them and how do we want to take the approach? And I think it's... It's going to be fun because it gives you a different way of thinking about responsiveness baked into CSS and there'll be a discovery period. Like when does this make sense and when doesn't it make sense? I mean, I think there's some obvious cases like one obvious case is, you know, say I have kind of a main product surface and I have some independent panels that can go in and out and change the size of that product surface. Being able to scope my media queries to be it, In that main product surface and have that container rather than having to do math around, okay, is this open and is that open and how wide are they and all those other things like that's super straightforward and no brainer application. But then there's other questions of like, does it make sense to have a component that changes how it looks depending on the space given to it and you drop it in someplace? Or does it make more sense to have that be explicit? And when does it and doesn't it make sense and all these different things. So I'm really excited to be kind of exploring a new paradigm for thinking about responsivity in, in CSS.
3: So maybe just for some of us who aren't following along, what
1: is a container query?
0: <laughs> yes. Oh, good. Good point. Asking for a friend. Good question. So <laughs> First off, you're probably familiar with media queries in CSS, but Mm -hmm. if you're not, I'll highlight these are queries that you can write in your CSS that let you change the way something is styled based on some attribute of the viewing browser. Traditionally, these were mostly around size of the browser window. Now, there are also media queries around capabilities and other different things that you can do there, but if we scope this to size, because that's what's relevant for container queries, traditionally, you'd have to say, okay, how wide is my browser? If it's smaller than some amount, do this thing. If it's larger than some amount, do this other thing. And this is how we are able to make responsive websites using purely CSS. Container queries take this and say, okay, instead of having that only be based on the browser width, we're gonna pick an element in our page and call that a container. And we can then use queries within it to change the way that things are styled based on the size of that container. So suddenly you can have a component that understands how to resize itself or be responsive to to size based purely on where it's located in your page, how much space is available to it. This is a feature that CSS developers have been asking for as long as I have been in web development, I believe. I remember looking it up like it was in the early 2000s when there were the first requests for this. For a very long time, everyone said it's impossible. You can't do it. It's impossible. Nobody will ever be able to do it. And then it's, at some point, somebody figured out, oh, wait, we do have a way to do this. And now all the browsers are working on it, and Chrome is the first one shipping it.
1: So how far away is it? Don't look at Can I Use. No, for use.
0: For Chrome, it's the next mainline release, which is, I don't know, T-minus six weeks at most, and I don't know exactly when
1: that is. Right.
3: According to Can I Use, it was released August 29th. So
1: it's out. Two days ago. Okay. Boom. Boom. Update your Chrome. Get some container queries on. Update
0: your Chrome. You've got container queries. Exciting. For Firefox, I don't know. So if you're worried about Firefox, if you're worried about all those funny cross-browser things, yeah, you probably still have to wait for a little while. But you have the ability to start playing with it now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Is there any way to like polyfill this? It seems like it would be a difficult polyfill. That's a great question, and I don't know the answer. Because it looks like I'm on Can I Use Now. We do have Safari has it in 16 technology preview. And like you said, it's released in Chrome. Is Safari 16, that's not out, right, Nick? Safari 15 is out, I don't know.
3: Right, but next week, come next week, iOS uh, whatever, 16 will probably be out with that.
1: So there you get most mobile devices, and then, I mean, Chrome plus Safari is most mobile devices at that point, you know? True. Pretty much, you got Android and iOS covered. And then you have Chrome, which is like 65% browser share, but then you're missing Firefox, Edge, so it looks like there is a
0: polyfill. Okay. It only works in browsers that support where, like colon where. And it has a couple other like limitations and I suspect it's pretty performance intensive. So it's not necessarily something you're going to want to use a lot.
1: So Nick, for those who don't understand what polyfills are, can you give us the 101 on a polyfill? What's a polyfill?
3: That would be being able to like fill in capabilities that aren't supported natively by the browser but can be kind of implemented in in JavaScript most likely or, or in some technology. But right. you can ship it as a, a third-party library that mimics the same API and like fills that in when it's not available. So it usually does some kind of test to see if it is available and then provides that functionality. Otherwise, lets the, the browser handle it natively.
1: Right, which is really nice for features like these that are new and only implemented in a few browsers if you want to use them. And if they do have a polyfill, Now you're bloating a little bit your application size by including that polyfill, but it's trade-offs. And then you can use those technologies of the future today, and as browsers add them, eventually the polyfill becomes unnecessary. Mm -hmm. So let's just imagine that you have an application that uh, you want to use container queries, and let's just say there's no polyfill. At this point, we have Chrome and Safari, call them green, full support, and let's just say they're released. But we're missing Edge, we're missing Firefox. Would you guys use this or would you say, I got I to gotta support Edge and Firefox?
3: Honestly, it depends on the, the use case I have and the stability of the polyfill.
1: Let's say there's no polyfill. Oh, then no. It's a hypothetical now. <laughs> Only for play projects. Play projects.
0: So at, at work, we're serving enterprise folks. There's a ton of people using Edge. Right. I can't add, use or advocate anything that, that won't work in that environment. However... For fun, for play projects, for just mm-hmm. consumer facing, I'm not trying to make any money off of this. Yeah, sure.
1: Right. Or for things that you know are only targeting specific browsers, like Chrome extension. Yeah. That's what's kind of fun about building extensions is you can be like, this is for Chrome. And so I can use everything Chrome has and not worry about all the things that us professional adults have to worry about. You can kind of just play around and have fun. Mm
3: hmm. And obviously not for something like this.
1: That is a
0: really interesting idea too, right? If you have a Chrome extension that's manipulating web pages Mm -hmm. and you're injecting components of some sort, now you have a way to make those components responsive to whatever it is you're injecting them into. Mm. That is a fascinating use case.
1: Very cool. You are excited about this. Well, we have to move on. I'm excited as well. I'd be more excited with better browser support, but those things happen over time what I don't understand with can I use which is just like a can I use complaint is like when I see Edge doesn't support it doesn't tell me like but they've said like I would love to have like the their official stance like when they've said they're going to support it even if they back down on it later you know or like they're never going to sometimes it's like yeah they're never going to do this they've said it other times it's like we're waiting and sometimes I would love to have that information without having to go dig it myself that's just a can I use dot com feature request But I digress. They're downstream of Chromium, right? Does can't now use show Chromium? I don't think so.
3: No. But well, I guess that's browser versions, but right, Chrome one oh five is the one that included that. And Edge says that its version is one oh four. Presumably it's coming soon, but there's no Oh okay. I mean I'm just reading that. I'm not
1: you're reading in, you're reading between the lines. Yeah.
3: Not sure if that's what they actually do.
2: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Raygun. Raygun gives software teams instant visibility into the quality and the performance of their software. And I'm here with John Daniel Trask, co-founder and CEO of Raygun. So JD, let's talk about the challenge that software teams have. Are there really teams out there that don't have error tracking or error monitoring? Because you've been doing this for quite a while now. Have you ever met a team that's like, what is that? Why would I do that? Or is it super clear we must have error tracking? It's becoming more common, but most folks that we're bringing on board are still coming from nothing. I think that the next phase is in that telemetry and observability side of things. Like the cutting edge people are absolutely doing it already and they've been doing it a wee while, but a lot of people are coming on to that. And I often think about it as like you've made this investment in CI CD, but until you close that loop with real time insights coming from your production code, you're actually not making the most value of your CI CD pipeline. You've got repeatable, dependable builds going out, but you're not actually being able to fail forward and respond to customer feedback that's automatically provided as quickly as you could. Okay, so if you are of the majority of new customers to Raygun, coming to them with no air monitoring, no air tracking in place, you can try it out for free today. A free 14-day trial is waiting for you at Raygun.com. No credit card required. Join thousands of software teams out there who use Raygun every single day. Learn more at Raygun.com. Again, Raygun.com.
1: Nick, what has you excited these days?
3: I am excited, and I can't remember if I've ever talked about this on the podcast, but I probably have, and it's an app called Obsidian. Have you uh, heard the good word?
1: Oh, yes. You've told me about this. I'm not sure if it was on the show or not, but you got me excited about it, so much so that it's in my list of things to look at. But I haven't (laughs) looked at it yet, so please, tell us more.
3: It is just such a fantastic note-taking app that specifically works on a folder full of Markdown files. That is literally all it is. So it's as portable as you can get. There's no um, unencrypted Notion databases that it's going into, or mm. I didn't mean to call out any competitors specifically, but it can't possibly corrupt your notes because you can just pull them out as the Markdown files they are and throw them into any other Markdown viewer and look at them there. Right. But it just does so much around the plugins that it has and the ability to automate different pieces of it. I have like so many notes that are automatically generated for me. Like I have a daily note every day that fills in information about all the Jira tickets I'm working on automatically, like pulls from the tickets, pulls from GitHub, pulls from my to-do list about what I did yesterday, pulls from my logbook about the meetings I had yesterday in case I want a quick reference to that, pulls just random information. It queries me about like daily questions that I ask myself and I kind of give myself a rating on, did I learn something new today? Did I... Was I a good dad Like doing fun things with the kids? Did I exercise all of that? And I can see, I can graph that over time and see how I'm doing. And it's just amazing. And it's all written with web technologies, right? So I can, I can hit command shift I on Obsidian, open up the dev tools, and I can write my own extension right there by forking a, a TypeScript starter project and get going. And it's just so nice and easy to use.
1: That's neat.
0: Is it seamless to sync notes across devices? It can be (laughs) using a different tool. Would I have to set that up myself or do they have like some easy way to do it? Because like I use Rome research right now for note taking, which looking at this, it looks like this supports a lot of things. The big thing I love about Rome right now is I use it across my phone. I use it across multiple computers, all these different things. And it just keeps everything synced easily.
3: Yeah, it does for me too. I use their sync service, which like I had to create my own like encryption key and use that. And like if I lose that, I lose access to all my data. So I, I know it's all encrypted like that. It's very fast and seamless through that. But I pay like yearly for that. And that's like the part of Obsidian that I pay for. If you don't want to do that, you can use iCloud or Dropbox to do that syncing. I also do a backup to a Git repository. So I have a, a plugin that just every half hour during work hours just uh, pushes a new commit to a private Git repo and backs everything up that way as well. There's several ways that you can do it, but that's like the best part of it is it's just a folder of Markdown files. And if your phone can open that too, like you wouldn't even have to use Obsidian on the phone. They have a mobile apps, but you can just use it anywhere.
1: So do you find the Markdown that it produces to be as good as Markdown as if you were writing it inside a plain text editor?
3: I do. They have a Vim mode for all of that. So it's really nice and easy.
1: Oh, no wonder they got you. (laughs) <laughs> they do yeah do they have a typescript mode where you can just type your notes in typescript cuz then you'd be really in love <laughs> have you
3: ever used like a jupyter notebook like being able to like write stuff and then put data right in there
1: a little bit not enough to speak well on it but
3: yeah there's like a plugin that's not in their official plugin repository yet but there's a plugin for that where you can just write typescript or python like a number of different languages right in line and it will render that out so you can make it do whatever you want which is really cool But the really cool thing also is that they have a, like a WYSIWYG style editor. Like when I'm on the line or whatever, it's markdown. But then when I go to another line, it renders out to what it would look like if it were. Or
1: renders the markdown on a line by line basis. Yeah. Instead of like left, right panes, which is what the more, uh, is typically what you see. That's interesting.
0: Yeah. Sounds a lot like Rome, except... It's local Markdown files rather than on there.
1: It's
3: local Markdown. But then like there are some really popular plugins. Like uh, there's one called DataView that lets me write code blocks, like uh, fenced code blocks. And for the language, I I just put DataView. Or I can put DataView.js if I want to like intermix JavaScript with that. And that is basically like an SQL language for my Markdown files. So I can say like create a table based on... Every note that has this tag.
0: That's cool. Yeah. Okay. You, you might've just sold me.
3: (laughs) It's amazing. My daily note is basically a bunch of those that are like, these are the notes that I've left unsorted. These are the notes that have this specific tag that are in progress right now. These are some notes that are completely uncategorized and I can just like have a dashboard into everything and see it right from there. Just so cool.
0: That is really freaking cool. Okay. I just went from, okay, this sounds cool, but I've already got a good solution to, I might have to try this.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> well, Nick, that Obsidian affiliate fee you have going is really going to work out nicely. <laughs> just kidding. I'm sure this is pure enthusiasm. It really is. And I do want to check this one out as well. I can go round and round talking about note-taking, but we're going to move on so we can have other topics in the show. But you're speaking my love language as well, so maybe I will finally try it, even though I'm just stuck in my ways. All right, what I'm excited about... St- stable diffusion you all heard this you all know this term this is blowing up an interest in interest and popularity right now this is an open model based off of what we see with open ai's closed well proprietary open ai's AI proprietary anyways dolly and it's a text to image diffusion model the best roundup that i've read is Simon Wilson, who I think I referenced him probably a few weeks ago with his curl and with his SQLite tip. So he's been writing lots of good stuff lately. He has a great blog post about stable diffusion. He calls it a really big deal. He says, if you haven't been paying attention to it, you really should be. It was released just recently, like August 22nd by a company called Stability.ai. And like I said, it's a lot like OpenAI's Dolly, but they released the entire thing. So anybody can use it. Anybody can build on it. It's very permissively licensed and available to create new things. And because of that, there's been like this big explosion of people building things around it. So this is the art generation AI. I mean, like you type in a prompt and it generates art for you. And it's really good. I mean, the the results coming out of it are quite impressive. And it has all sorts of things people are building. One of the things that somebody built is called image to image, and so like a typical thing is like you give it a text prompt, like you say, a raccoon floating in space or something, and it shows you art of raccoons floating in space, and that's cool, and that's mostly what I've been doing as I've been playing with this thing. It's very addictive as well. Careful, it does cost money if you use their hosted service, and you'll run out of those free credits very quickly. At which point, you'll be so into it that you'll start pumping money into it. So be careful. But you can also run it on your own GPUs locally on your machine. I just haven't gotten that far. And it's pretty fast. So it's actually cheap in terms of energy consumption. That's cool. But then there's a new thing called image to image. Okay. In this case, instead of just providing a text prompt, you provide a source image that you've like hand drawn or something, and then you provide it a text prompt. And so the example they give is like basically like line art of like a circle and some Rectangles, you know, like you're kind of just like laying out what you want. And then the description is something along the lines of like a distant futuristic city full of tall buildings inside a huge transparent glass dome in the middle of a barren desert full of large dunes, sun rays, art station, dark sky full of stars with a sunny si- shiny sun, massive scale, fog, highly detailed, cinematic, colorful. Like you feed it that. And I will link to the results in the show notes from that. Like it, your source image, which is like this really low res, almost like MS Paint style thing, then the text describing it and then the results and they're stunning, they're stunning. So that's just one thing that's going on. People are creating Photoshop plugins where you can just like highlight a section of your Photoshop project and like describe some stuff and hit like generate and it inserts it right there and then you can edit it, do it again, generate, inserts new stuff. The amount of art that's gonna come out of this thing is gonna be staggering. It's pretty exciting, I've been playing with it way too much and uh it's so much fun you guys tried it yet k-ball is nodding yes
0: i'm like going right now i found somebody published on hacker news like a hosted thing yes i'm actually thinking about this this would be a cool way to generate blog post images right so you write something up like there's always a tricky thing of like how do i generate a cool image to go with this like start with that download it add some text or what have you
1: so Peter Cooper of JavaScript Weekly and all those weekly newsletters, he has started to use this. He might be using actual Dolly, he might be using Stable Diffusion, I'm not sure. Dolly is like a sign up, paid for service, you know, there's a free plan, et cetera, that you have to use there, but like Stable Diffusion's like anybody can download this and use these things and so people are really starting to like do cool stuff with it, but he's done that a few times at the top of his newsletters. And it is some super cool results. Like I, I subscribed to his Postgres Weekly and, you know, the Postgres mascots like an elephant. And like he just has this really cool artistic, like painted elephant at the top. And he's wearing like a spectacle. And the topic was like looking inside of Postgres. I don't know. It was like on point for the topic. It was like, that's a really cool way to add some flair to your content. I put the link there in the chat if you guys want to check out the results of that thing I explained. It's so cool.
0: Yeah, some things I'm tinkering around with it. It's pretty hit or miss, but when it hits, it's really freaking cool.
1: Yeah, there are ones that aren't as good. If you click through, if you're on the, the streamstudio.ai, I think is like the one that's the, the hosted service that's paid for and gives you some free credits to start. They have an actual thing where they'll teach you how to prompt it better. And once you read through that, you'll get much better results. The main thing is you actually have to tell it what kind of style you're looking for. Uh, you can tell it like specific artists, you can, like, you can say like Rembrandt, and like, it's gonna do it in the style of Rembrandt, etc. So once you learn how to prompt it better, the results are more, I guess, consistent. But yeah, there's still gonna be hit or miss, but that's a nice thing about having humans working with the AI, is then we can do the final, right. the last mile, right? We can pick the best one.
0: <laughs> it's human augmentation, not replacement.
1: Yeah, it's like collabing with a computer, which is kind of weird but cool. There was a conference
3: I went to locally called Connectaha. And one of the speakers, every image that they had in their slides came from the, the Dolly crayon site. Right. And it was just really cool seeing that. Like he just typed in like some prompt that was based on the slides and it gave its best representation of what that could be. And it was, it was a really cool way to talk about that. And he kind of also talked about how he did that. And it was, it was kind of cool. I love that idea.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of interesting, I guess, long-term will be legal as well as ethical <laughs> questions because these are similar to the way GitHub Copilots come in the question of like, okay, is this legal, first of all? Is it moral to do this, et cetera? It's a very similar process, right? Like this thing gathers gigabytes and gigabytes and terabytes or whatever, like billions of pictures from around the web, distills them down into like, I don't know, matrix math or something, some crazy math things, and then uses that as like a filter through which to run this neural network and out pops something quote unquote new or derivative, I guess is the right word. And uh, you know the, the concept art that we're seeing come out of this and think about how far it's come from the initial Dolly release to this and then go like a year or two ahead and think about what it'll be then. It's rivalry what humans can do at this point. So like there's a lot of people who do concept art as their job, right? or like branded content with artwork, I don't know. Yeah, I mean the blog post
0: example I'm talking about, I usually buy those images, right?
1: Yeah, I mean logos. But
0: if I can generate it for what feels like free because it's essentially you know embedded in my electricity bill and my already paid for laptop. Right. I probably will do that instead.
1: Plus if you're like, okay, I can pay, Let's let's just take like a, I got a new company, we need a logo, I could hire a person talk then, tell them like to still down my company, like have them give me three iterations. Oh, I like that one. Let's go back and and go through that whole process, which I'm sure I've done plenty of times. Probably everybody else has as well. Or I can go for 10 bucks onto this website and do like 10,000, just keep hitting the button and generate new ones till I find one that I like. It's going to be disruptive, but it's still exciting. I mean, it's really cool stuff. And I love the stable diffusion as opposed to Dali because of its open nature. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you don't need to use a hosted service, you can download it, run it on your laptop, you can play with it, you can change it, you can build new things, which is what's happening. We're six days, seven days since it got released and there's already people who are like doing things you wouldn't have imagined with a hosted service. So that's cool. All right, I'll quit ranting. This has been Things That We're Excited About. I will not force you to listen to that jingle again. We'll just (laughs) stop right here.
0: Wait, you're not excited about the jingle? You don't
3: sound very excited.
1: (laughs) Okay, fine. I'm excited. I'm I'm excited. About
0: X. About X. About, about, about X. Where X is literally.
1: And I mean literally. Anything. Anything. Did
0: you use stable diffusion to create that? Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's manual. I used Adobe Audition and my own (laughs) brain, but I probably should have because it would have been better. (laughs) Next time.
2: What's going on party people? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Hasora. Hasora lets you create dynamic, high-performance GraphQL and REST APIs from your databases in minutes with granular authorization and caching baked in. All this without touching your underlying database. Go from data to API in literally minutes as the technology landscape evolves a key bottleneck for teams is making data accessible especially in enterprise environments modernizing applications and building new features is critically dependent on being able to shape, control, and ship your data to interfaces demanding always available real-time access. Hasaurus solves this problem by connecting your databases, your REST servers, your GraphQL servers, and third-party APIs to provide a unified, real-time GraphQL API across all your data sources. Imagine your tech stack is a Postgres database, Go is your backend language, REST APIs, and vendors who only expose REST and React for your front-end. Hasura can give you an instant GraphQL API for your front-end, an API that's protected with roles, caching, and everything you expect from a secure API and the ability to connect all your services into a single API. All this while ensuring the performance, the security, and the reliability requirements of your API layer. The most important business value Hasura provides is reducing time to market. Imagine if your team can go from data to API in literally minutes, it would be a game changer. Everything they do is through the lens of making developers productive and getting to production ready in minutes. The easiest way to get started with Hasura is with Hasura Cloud. It is fully managed in skills as you grow. Head to Hasura.io slash Party. That's hasur aio I-O slash gsparty again. Hasura.io slash gsparty. And by our friends at SourceGraph, they recently launched Code Insights. Now you can track what really matters to you and your team in your code base. Transform your code into a queryable database to create customizable visual dashboards in seconds. Here's how engineering teams are using Code Insights. They can track migrations, adoption, and deprecation across the code base. They can detect and track versions of languages or packages. They can ensure the removal of security vulnerabilities like Log4J. They can understand code by team, track code smells, and help. and visualize configurations and services. Here's what the engineering manager at Prezi has to say about this new feature, quote, as we've grown, so has a need to better track and communicate our progress and our goals across the engineering team and the broader company. With Code Insights, our data and migration tracking is accurate across our entire code base and our engineers and our managers can shift out of manual spreadsheets and spend more time working on code, end quote. The next step is to see how other teams are using this awesome feature. Head to about.sourcegraph.com slash code insights. This link will be in the show notes. Again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights.
1: next up we are going to discuss a topic that has been forming in the mind of K Ball. it's not fully formed but he's been forming it i guess he wants some help to ping pong it off a few of us maybe off of you the listener you can tell us what you think afterwards and maybe this will become a profitable discussion so i'm going to pass it to K Ball to describe i could read his blurb but i won't do that to all of us i'll let him blurb out loud Ball, what are we talking about
0: yeah so this is something that as you kind of said i've been like it's been rattling around in my head for a while, and I'm, I feel like it's out of focus. So, maybe y'all can be my diffusion, stable diffusion to move it to something that looks beautiful. Okay. But kind of high level is thinking about how, as you move up in your career, the timelines of the types of projects or types of change that you're trying to make shift. And you get kind of different interactions and feedback loops between different types of timeline things. So for an example, as a junior dev, you might work primarily on tasks that are a single ticket, that might have a timeline of hours, maybe days, you have rapid iteration loops, you get quick feedback on whether you're in the right direction or not. As you get into more senior roles, maybe you start planning full features, larger projects, they might take weeks or months and consist of many of those smaller tasks. And you have to think about how do I build up to this What are the early signs that we might not be hitting our our, my lines, things like that. And then continuing moving up as you become a manager or staff plus engineer or things like that. Some projects might take years to pay off. I'm working on a cultural initiative at work that I started trying to seed things of two years ago, and it's still going and it might take another six months or a year before it actually pays off in terms of fruition. So I feel like, The thing I'm trying to to think about or or get more of a sense of is like, how do I think about the interactions between these different levels of timelines and how do I like better identify, Okay, this project, this is going to be a six month project, so I should be thinking about it this way, whereas this is a tight loop. This is going to be done in a week. We got to narrow it down.
1: Mm. My initial answer to that would be intuition. I don't know experience. It's tough to speak about these in abstract terms without like actual project details.
0: Let me use one in particular. Okay, This is one actually I've been coaching one of my reports through. So we're working on trying to make accessibility something that is a first class concept at work, something that is incorporated in all of our planning, thinking, timelines, everything that we ship should be fully accessible, at least to AA level, things like that. This is something new for our company so one of the challenges in doing this is like this involves human behavior change which to me right. i said okay this is human behavior change this is at least a six month project <laughs> if we want to actually change the way people are are behaving by default it's going to take at least six months but we can identify like micro projects within that let's create a linter for this let's upgrade this area of the site let's do an audit that sort of thing but i think one of the things I've been working with this report on is if you're not used to thinking in terms of those timelines, you can think, okay, I'm going to do this work and I'm going to go. And it's been three weeks and nobody's changed their behavior yet. And that's really frustrating and feels like, is it worth doing this at all? Is it like, where should I go with this? But because we're talking about behavior change, like we got to look for all the different ways to kind of hook in and nudge people forward and remind them and put it in our process here and put it in our tooling here and kind of look for all these ways to align it with the expectation that this is going to take six months or a year to fully play out.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think in that case, you also have the fact that it's a cross-cutting concern, right? Like you can't silo it to a specific area of a website or to a specific team, right? Like there's kind of vertical features and there's like horizontal. And this would be a horizontal thing where it's like everybody in the engineering teams, however many there are, has to adopt
0: Plus design.
1: Yeah, I mean, not just engineering, but like a product, etc. especially the people who are going ahead and implementing those things. But it probably starts even earlier than that with like design and actual thinking out of the product. But that's tough because how do you accomplish such a broad sweeping thing in an organization that does require behavior change? And maybe even six months is underselling it. Have you thought about that?
0: That's why I said it's at least, you know, <laughs> if it involves behavior change, On more than one individual, I'm like, minimum six months. It could be much more than that. But I think you're raising a really good point, right? How many teams are involved in this? How many teams does this touch? Yeah. That's a factor
1: for sure. And for me, then, I start thinking, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And so the the thing is like, okay, this is a huge project. It's going to be at least six months, according to KBall. Could be two years. We don't know. How do I actually attack such a large thing? And the answer goes to, well, first of all, you try to break it down into the tasks that you're talking about. Maybe the linter is the first one. Then you actually target some sort of a sample group for that first thing. It's like, okay, we're going to build a linter and we're going to release it to my immediate team and see if we use it for a while. And then start thinking about, so it's just, it's chunking and breaking things down. And that helps you think about the timeline because the timeline becomes smaller for those individual parts. I don't know, Nick, you're nodding along, but you haven't said much. What are your thoughts on this?
3: First off, I'm just wondering why... Why you think that at a higher scale you estimates would be any use when they're not useful at the low end? True, <laughs> but I think that that's that's it. You just have to break it down, right? And so, like, you can have this goal or this area of responsibility that you want to attack, but then have like you have projects that that line up with that overall goal, and those projects are the things that you can measure. That's just breaking it down, right? You can break those down. You can try and estimate those and then just sum them together and multiply by two and add 1.7, whatever, like, you know, whatever heuristic you have for estimates and do it from there. But then also I think that, especially if it's something that's cross team or you have different areas with maybe different folks in those areas, like you have to think about how to get that buy-in. And I'm thinking of this Derek Seavers talk that I saw probably 10-15 years ago about like finding your first follower and they will help you get others on board so like if you need to sell some new way of doing things how do you sell that to one person who can then help you sell that to everyone else you get that Mm. first follower doing that so how do you get the buy-in
1: have you seen the Seth Godin one where it's the third person that sells it have you seen that one
3: maybe I'm not recalling it
1: okay so here's the Seth Godin one it's a video of a guy at a music fest Yes. and there's like a side of the hill and one, one guy dancing and everybody else just sitting there like watching the music on picnic blankets. Yeah. And he's like having a great time, but everyone thinks he's a crazy person. Like no one's dancing. And then the second person comes and starts dancing with him, And now it's like, okay, this is still weird, but it's two weird people dancing and everyone looks at them and they watch them and like, okay, two weird guys. And like they're like jumping around and they're sweating and everything and then comes the third person and as soon as the third person joins that group now it's like a it's like the validation is there and everybody just goes in there and they all start dancing like the third person actually tipped the scale and just bring that up because it was a very similar concept but for some reason Seth Godin says the third person is the key to like starting a movement whereas like the second person is just your first follower the third one's like now it's a Now it's a group.
0: Yeah, now we're a team. We're going somewhere or something. Yeah,
1: exactly. But you got to start with one before you get to two. Exactly.
0: That's really interesting when you think about the linkages there to like the individual projects and the timelines, right? Because that's now we're talking about influence. How do you estimate timelines for influence? Yeah. Right. Like you're going to have to have a lot of conversations and have in your mind, you're kind of hunting. You're like looking for who are going to be those people that could be your first follower, second follower.
1: Was I describing the Derek Cybers one? You were. <laughs> it yeah. wasn't Seth Godin? No. So I just changed the person, <laughs> cut you off, and explained the exact same thing that you were explaining already. Exactly. But that's okay. Gosh. what an
3: You're the first follower. It's perfect.
1: So does he talk about the third
3: one, though? I don't know. That's where I, I got confused on it.
1: Pretty sure this is also on Seth Godin's blog, but he talks about the third one.
0: <laughs> it might have been Seth Godin did a like, take on...
1: This was back when they did... Uh, fearing, right reaction blogs like one guy would blog and then the other person would blog based on what they're saying yeah think of it like a tiktok remix for the youth it's a quote tweet yeah it's a quote tweet <laughs> i'm gonna find seth Godin's and validate me stepping all over you but yes we we're talking about the exact same thing i'm sorry
0: so definitely my logical mind is like okay i start this is big i need to break it down kind of go things there Where I start to wonder or like where I feel like I'm still not totally clear is like, like, I feel like one, when you start talking about influence and stuff like that, it doesn't break cleanly, right? It's not like, okay, here's a set of serialized projects that I can take on. It's like, here's a set of almost campaigns that I need to be running continuously and that are going to gradually build momentum. But yeah, then there's also this question of like, if I know this is a large project, what are the signs that I can look for on those shorter terms that tell me, is this going the right direction or do I need to course correct? I'm not sure if it's as simple as watching the progress of my broken down micro projects. Maybe it is, but that's kind of where I'm
1: stewing. Sorry, K-Ball. I've been Googling that code this whole time.
0: <laughs> that's okay. Did you find it? No, I might be completely wrong.
1: It might be Derek Severs.
0: See, so if you had Obsidian... You could search through your notes and keep
1: track of it. exactly. Oh, you assume I would, I would have noted that down. <laughs> it was like a decade ago. How am I supposed to get this right? Yeah. <laughs> we can't even tell by watching the video because the
3: quality is so poor that you can't even see who that is.
1: So I remember a, specifically a blog post where it explains how special that third person is. It's like the video is embedded, but there's actual text around it. I wonder if Derek Sievers wrote that as well. Hmm. But that's what I'm looking for. So I wasn't listening, Cable. I'm a bad friend. That's okay. I don't know what Nick's excuse was. <laughs> no,
3: I was listening. <laughs> I was trying to Google quickly for the name of the thing that I was going to bring up. And it's, I can't find it. I will find it for the show notes, but there's some law, right? That anything that you can measure becomes gamifiable or whatever.
1: Oh yeah. Conway's law. Conway's law. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Any target that becomes to a measure ceases to be a good target. Yes. Yes. Yes.
3: And so I was gonna bring that up as like if you could measure whether you're making progress or not, then eventually that's not going to work, like pretty quickly, because people will just be going towards that measurement rather than mm. maybe what the overall goal is.
2: Mm. The
1: problem with estimates and timelines and all these things. I found Sievers did a tech talk.
0: A te- sorry, a <laughs> TED talk. <laughs> now we're now we're all
1: Googling this thing.
0: Yeah. He did a TED talk and he says The first follower transforms a lone nut into a leader. Okay. The second follower is a turning point. It's proof the first has done well. Now it's not a lone nut and it's not two nuts. Three is a crowd and a crowd is news.
1: That's what I was referring to. So I think it was Seaver the whole way along. The smoking gun. But I'm sure Seth
0: Godin will appreciate the fact that his brand has been so strong in this space.
1: His brand is so strong.
0: (laughs) It's like the everything was Mark Twain type of thing, right? Yeah, exactly.
1: Or Albert Einstein. Okay, so Seavers the whole time. Sorry, Derek. And is that called the first follower or is it called the second follower? The TED Talk, I think, is called How to Start a Movement. Okay. Yes.
0: And his um, I found this through something on his blog... It's titled Leadership Lessons from Dancing Guy.
1: Okay. That's definitely the content that we're referring to. (laughs) I just thought Nick was talking about one follower and I was like, no, there's two followers. That's the whole point. Oh, yeah. So continue to apologize.
0: But you might have to be out there dancing for a long time before you get those followers.
1: And how do you estimate how long you need to dance?
0: (laughs) Maybe I should stop (laughs) dancing because it's been 30 minutes and I'm getting sweaty, but nobody's dancing with me.
3: Right. How do you know? That's where Seth Godin's book, The Dip, comes in. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes!
3: <laughs> Tie it all together. Say more. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've read that one, too. But that, that is effectively like... Oh, let me tell you. Let me tell you. No. It's when to keep going and when to give up,
1: I think. Well, should we keep going or should we give up here? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I think Dancing Guy is an interesting example in some ways because... He's not explicitly asking people to come out and dance. He's out there leading by example, purely. I think if you're trying to lead change in an organization, there's an important piece is you should be actively seeking out those followers and kind of trying to get a sense of like, right, what is important to you? How can I tie what's important to you into this thing that I'm trying to achieve so that you become my first follower, second follower crowd that creates a movement?
1: Yeah, it's more like a wedding party where it's more intentional. So like the similar problem at a wedding, like maybe you're having a wedding reception after the, the ceremony is over and you'd like to have dancing at your ceremony but you know everyone's kind of sitting around, they're not dancing. And so of course you start with the married couple and then you bring in the parents perhaps. There's a few special dances. But then a good strategy to get people dancing is to have the people who are on the floor go out into the crowd and convince somebody to come with them. So it's way more intentional. And if you can get that going, a similar effect happens. But you have to actually convince somebody like this is a good idea. And it's always hardest to convince the first couple of people. But once you have the movement it's easy to follow the crowd. So maybe that's a better alignment with what you're talking about here, where it's actually like, how do I persuade to get this thing going inside of this organization and actually affect change versus just being out here dancing all by myself?
0: Yeah, and the thing I like about that as well is when you first start trying to make change inside of organizations, you'll run into this where getting that first couple of followers and getting them going takes a tremendous amount of time. And then at some point you hit this place where they're ready and they're going out and pulling people in. And it seems like now the change happens very quickly. And so someone who's not kind of thinking about the timescale and thinking about all of those different leading things yeah. will say, oh, this change happened really fast. And then if you talk about the person who made it happen, they say, you know what? I've been working on this for three years. You saw the changes that happened in
1: three months at the end of the project. Right. Right. Yeah, the overnight success that's been going for a decade. This reminds me, we had a conversation on the changelog with Corey Wilkerson from GitHub, and he talked about affecting change inside of GitHub. You know how GitHub, like they moved everybody over to Code Spaces? Like their whole engine, I mean, not 100%, but like 90% of their engineers now use GitHub Code Spaces and they're coding in the cloud, which, you know, talk about something that's difficult to convince an engineer to do is like adopt this new coding environment and he talked about in detail how he went about evangelizing leading you know persuading people inside of github to try code spaces to use it to adopt it and how that spread over time to the point where they got there so that might be if you're interested in this topic maybe not on the timeline side but on like the persuasion side he gives a lot of actual strategies that he employed to get that done i'll put that one in the show notes episode 459 of the changelog a bigger conversation but inside that was this deal where he had to do this not completely by himself but as a leader inside a large engineering team in order to adopt a brand new way of building stuff and he got it done
0: it reminds me also of the the sort of adages for startups about doing things or startup founders about doing things that don't scale and the stories of The Collison brothers starting up Stripe and literally going to people and being like, no, give me your laptop. I will code in a Stripe integration for you and kind of doing this because to the point we've been discussing, those first followers are what turns this from this is something weird and new to no, this is the cool new thing.
1: And here I just thought we're supposed to write code for a living.
3: Yeah,
0: you can do that and you will sort of top out probably around a senior engineering level at most large orgs. And you can make a very good living just writing code. But if you want to keep advancing up the career ladder or keep advancing your influence, I think all this stuff is super important.
3: Isn't that sad? The more senior you get, the less direct influence you have. Uh, Not necessarily, but the less code influence you have. Right. You have more influence potentially, but.
1: There's more leverage at the higher levels. Yeah. The further away you are from the code editor, the more leverage you have, but the less tactile but that also ties into these
0: feedback loops, right? Part of what makes the coding so satisfactory is you get this really tight feedback right. loop. If you got a good dev environment. It's like seconds. I tweak this thing and now it's different and I tweak this thing and now it's different. That like right. very tight feedback loop is extremely satisfying. Yeah. That's actually one of the reasons I've been thinking about this a lot is both I and then some of the people I'm coaching are moving more into architecture, strategic roles, change making, all these different things. And it's you have to like, figure out, like what are the signals? How do I look for, what's, am I actually doing the right thing and moving
1: in the right direction?
3: Mm-hmm. Mm. It's much harder to revert bad policy than it is a bad commit.
0: Yeah, that too.
1: Well, if I learned anything from Nick Neesey by way of Seth Godin, it's you have to know <laughs> when to power through and you have to know when to stop. And I feel like we powered through, and we came to a very good place. And I think it's time now to stop. And so this has been a very interesting conversation. It's gone many places I didn't expect, and that's always fun. We hope that you all enjoyed going on that party with us. We'll put a link to Derek Seaver's stuff on starting movements, and we will not link to Seth Godin's stuff on starting movements, but we'll put the dip in there for you if you want to check that out. K-Ball, Nick, thanks so much for partying with us today. Any parting words or final thoughts before we call the show? Ahoy, ahoy. (laughs) that was not nick that was an imposter
3: impressive though
1: that was totally sus are people still staying sus i don't know i'm always a month behind just like nick is on tiktok slash instagram
0: that has become a thing inside our household because our kids got excited about watching among us and then we started playing among us in real life in our household which by the way if we were going to do pro tips and you have kids Get them excited about Among Us in real life. It's a great way to get them doing chores
1: in real life.
0: Because you put the chores that you need to get done as the tasks in your Among Us tasks in real life. And you, even if they're not doing the ones that are the actual chores, like you can do chores, they're playing a game, they're totally happy. You're getting s- done, and it's
1: great. Just gotta bleep you. I'm gonna bleep your hoy hoy and your other <laughs> words. But I'm I'm alone. You're playing Among Us in real life. Like I've only played it on video games. Like you can just play the game.
0: Yes. You play Among Us and you get like a whiteboard. You write out a bunch of
1: tasks. It's all DIY. There's not like a thing you buy.
0: Totally DIY. Okay. Write out a bunch of tasks that you got to do. Get a bunch of like paper slips and write, you know, crewmate
1: or... And you get your kids doing chores.
0: Yeah. You write up and some of them... (laughs) That is sus. Like put away this thing or like this thing needs to be cleaned up or make the beds. Those are the tasks. And of course, it has to be something where you're okay if the imposter undoes it, right? Like make the beds and they undo the beds. Not a big deal clean up the floors, you don't want them dumping stuff on the floor again, right? Or like dirt
1: or whatever. I feel like my kids would see straight through this and be like, nah.
0: (laughs) You gotta include one, they gotta start being excited by Among Us. Okay. So if they're excited by Among Us, you say, hey guys, we're gonna do Among Us in real life. Okay. And you gotta include some ringers too that are not just chores, but like are fun things that they they gotta do. Uh, Okay. But even if it's like you're trying to get time to get this stuff done while they're entertaining and they i don't know about your kids you got enough maybe they entertain each other just fine but ours will Mm. like go at it but you get them playing among us and like now it's fun and it's a game and they're working on this and they're working on this and i'm doing the dishes over here because that's on our task list man
1: i like it i'm gonna try it nick any final words from you Uh and with that i'm just kidding (laughs) do you want to say something (laughs) no that's perfect (laughs) that's perfect all right i'm jared this is JS Party. Thanks for hanging out and we'll talk to y'all on the next one. All right, friends, that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you are new to the pod, subscribe now before you forget. Head to jsparty.fm for all the ways. New feature alert. We've added chapters to all of our shows. If you don't see them in your podcast app, maybe you need a better one that supports this awesome way of navigating an episode. If your app does support chapters and you still don't see them, please file a bug report by emailing editors at changeblog.com or hit us up on the Twitters. We're at JSPartyFM. Thanks again to our partners at Fastly for CDNing for us, to Fly.io for hosting our app servers and database, to the mysterious BMC for producing all our beats, and to you for being part of the JS Party community. We appreciate you. Next up on the pod, Nick and K Ball are back. This time they have Austin Gill joining them to discuss many topics, including a little known feature of HTML that lets you access a user's camera. Stay tuned for that. We'll drop it in your podcast app next week.